Uh, so we come to the point in the service uh, where we open up our Bibles and we uh, hear from God's Word. So let's first turn to uh, the New Testament, uh, a little letter by the Apostle Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. So 1 Peter is a, a letter written by the disciple, uh, the follower of Jesus, uh, named Peter. And he's writing to Christians that have been um, scattered because of persecution. And they're not totally sure what to do uh, at this point in their life, so Peter writes this letter to them. So we're going to start at verse 13, and we're going to read to verse 21. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not, be, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of, of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but as revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. And now turn back a few books, and we're going to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew is the first book uh, in the New Testament. And it is uh, also written by a disciple of Jesus named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans before Jesus called him uh, to follow him, and his whole life had changed forever. So Matthew, chapter 17, and we're going to start um, in verse 22. Matthew 17, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their children or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake throw out your line, and take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. This is the word of the Lord. Let's do a, a, a prayer of illumination before we uh, dive into the message. So let's pray. Our Father, we ask you again, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you would Fill this place with your spirit, that your spirit would be here, that it would be here in power, and that you would give me the grace to speak clearly and accurately, 
Lord, we pray that you would um, bring the truth and the power of the gospel out from this text, and that you would give each one of us exactly what it is you want us to hear this morning. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, dear friends, I want to start with a question. A show of hands, how many of you have gone fishing this summer or, or plan to go fishing? Okay, so quite a few of you, quite a few of you. And I'm guessing that if you have gone fishing, you probably have some, some really crazy fishing stories where the fish was like this big, and it was probably more like this big. I had a friend um, when I lived in Hamilton, his name was Bill. And Bill was uh, like 80 years old, and he had all the, the, the lures and the, and the rods that you can think of. Bill was a fishing guru. But what was really unique about Bill was that he had these like stacks and stacks of logbooks in his basement where he recorded from the age of like, I don't know, six or seven when he started fishing to the age of 80, every single fish that he had ever caught. I'm not kidding. He would, he would record uh, the water temperatures, the lake that he was on, the date, the time, uh, the type of lure that he used, and the species of fish that he caught. If I let Bill talk all afternoon, he would, and he would tell me all these crazy fishing stories of the best fish that he's ever caught in the craziest situations. But I bet if I asked Bill, and if I asked each one of you, if you've ever caught a fish that had a, a silver coin in its mouth, a, a silver coin that's worth, in our currency, a couple hundred dollars, if I ask you that, I, I bet you have to admit that you never have. And if you have, I want you to come up to me after the service because I've got to hear that story. Well, see, this morning we, we come to the, a story in Matthew that on the surface seems a bit obscure and honestly a little bit funny. You know, I imagine that Jesus had a, a twinkle in his eye when he said to Peter, just go fishing, Peter. We're in Capernaum. Uh, this is your hometown. You know these waters like the back of your hand. Just go fishing, Peter. Just throw your hook in the water. Let the line drop. You don't even need any lures. Don't bring your tackle box. And the first fish that you're going to catch is going to have a silver coin in its mouth. Now, that's a, that's a pretty amazing miracle. But is that all this story is? Is this just a, a, a crazy miracle story, a fishing story, where Jesus used a fish in order to pay his taxes? Well, what we'll discover uh, this morning, is that this story is far deeper than that. You see, the gospel is here in this story. This is a story that reflects Jesus' sovereignty. It's a story that reflects his love for sinners, uh, his sonship to the Father, his humility, his mission here on earth, and his willingness to pay the ransom for our sins. And in order for us to uncover all that, we have to go back one chapter. So if you have your Bibles open, you can kind of follow with me. I'm not going to read directly. I'm going to summarize. But in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples with certainty that he was going to die in Jerusalem. And the shadow of the cross, it was starting to loom closer and closer to Jesus. And his disciples, you have to understand, they were having a hard time coming to grips with his death and with his resurrection. And in, in chapter 16, you have Peter pulling Jesus aside and saying, Jesus, you can't die. This is not going to happen to you. You've got to stop talking like this. This is never going to happen to you. There's no way that you're going to die in Jerusalem. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. This is not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. Stop talking like this. You're supposed to be king. You're supposed to free us from the Romans. 
And Jesus, he doesn't hold back in his response to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an hindrance to me. Whoa. You see, Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew his mission. He knew that he had to pay the ransom price on the cross for the sins of the world. Well, see, now we come to chapter 17, and we find a crescendo point in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is climbing a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And on that mountain, his divine glory has shone from his face and from his clothes. And in that moment of glory, the voice of the Father came from the sky, and it said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him, as in, Listen to what he says about his death and his resurrection. He's, he's prepared for his death in Jerusalem. And after that moment in, in chapter 17, that glorious moment of Jesus being transfigured, we call it, he descends the mountain. And then there's a brief story about him casting on a demon. And then in verse 22, once again, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. But this time, this time the, the disciples, they didn't object they listened, as the voice of the Father had told them to do. But I want you to notice in verse 23, it says, the disciples were filled with grief. Jesus is going to die? What? What's going on? And it's on the heels of this prediction of, of suffering and death and resurrection in Jerusalem that we find this really curious episode, not recorded in any of the other Gospels. And as Jesus is making his way to the cross, he stopped one last time in Capernaum. And so we're going to look at this passage together uh, through this theme, the Son of God pays my ransom. And if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to look at three different points. We're first going to look at the accusation against the Son, the response of the Son, and then finally the ransom of the Son. So the accusation against the Son, the response of the Son, and then the ransom of the Son. So point number one, the accusation against the son. The narrative uh, starts with Peter getting cornered by some tax collectors. And now these weren't the kind of tax collectors that Matthew was, uh, not the ones that uh, used to collect taxes for, for Rome. No, these were uh, individuals uh, that were Jewish, and they collected taxes for the temple. And so they usually set up their shop near Jerusalem, but every year before the Passover, they would go to certain towns and set up their tables and they would collect something called the two drachma tax. A two drachma tax. That's it's, it's a type of coinage that they used back then. And essentially, this tax went towards the upkeep of the temple, um, paying the soldiers, paying the priests, making sure there's food on the table, keeping the lights on, things like that. And um, maybe you're thinking at this point, okay, that sounds pretty standard. Uh, our church collects money to pay for salaries, keeping the lights on, same thing. But it's actually not the same thing. This, this temple tax is unique. Uh, it, was, it was a tax that was collected um, for Jewish men over the age of 20, and it was on top of their, their tithes that they had to give based off of their salaries. So this was an extra tax. And there's a really interesting history behind the tax that we have to just really briefly go into to understand why this story is so significant. So I'm going to try to not get in the weeds here. I'm just going to try to explain it as, as clearly as I can. So just bear with me if it gets a little bit complicated. So in the book of Exodus, right, we have the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, they have been set free 
uh, from Egypt, from slavery. They're traveling across the desert, and, and God is giving them these laws to live by during that time. And we get, uh, uh, as they're traveling, there's no temple, obviously, in the desert. There's only a tabernacle, right? They're, they're traveling around. And then in Exodus chapter 30, we get this really interesting passage where Old Testament scholars say is the origins of this temple tax. So in that chapter, God decreed a tax of half a shekel, which is equivalent to the two drachmas that we have in our text. And it had to be paid by every Jewish man who was 20 years old and older. Okay, so, but, but here's the kicker. The tax had to be collected whenever a census was taken. And a census is basically a head count. So if, if you do a census, you have to tax the men 20 years and older and up. Half a shekel. And then where did this money go? Well, it had to go somewhere, so it went to the tabernacle. And what's really interesting is that the tax was called a ransom tax. A ransom tax. And why was it called a ransom tax? Well, it's called that because if the leaders of the people did a census without doing this tax, a plague would come upon the people. That's what God promised, a plague. And that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Why, why is a plague coming in if you don't do this tax? Well, I, I can explain. Let me, let me explain. The reason for the plague was because the basic purpose of doing a census of men 20 years and older was to see if you had a big enough army to defeat your enemies. That makes sense, right? And what God was trying to show the people was that if they, they didn't need to worry about having a big enough army, he was going to take care of them. What God is basically saying is, don't do this census. Trust me to take care of you. Okay. But if you did a census anyways, if you did a census anyways, you have to do this tax to cover the sin of doing a census. And the tax would be a ransom for your life. That's the Exodus 30 language, a ransom for your life. You pay the tax, you don't get a plague, it's pretty simple. Okay, now fast forward a thousand years, and we get to the history time of, of this guy named Nehemiah. This is the time when the Persians, if you know world history, are conquering the world, they're taking over, and, and King Darius basically gave this guy um, Ezra to, uh, a bunch of money to build up the temple. It had been destroyed by the previous conquerors, and now he's like, here's some money, you can now pay uh, to rebuild this temple. But the, the problem was that the money was starting to dry up, and the temple still had to be rebuilt. And so the people in Nehemiah looked at this Exodus passage, and they Im imported the principle of this half-shekel tax on each person and made it an obligatory offering to the temple. Okay? And this was for rebuilding the temple. Okay, I hope you're still tracking with me. We're, gonna get, we're coming back to the passage now. Fast forward 500 years. We're at Matthew 17. And the ransom tax had lost its connection to the census. And it's also no longer necessary for rebuilding the temple. It had already been rebuilt. So what happened was it had become a point of tradition and a point of supposed Jewish piety. And one commentator I, I read uh, noted that there was, there was five things that a Jewish person had to do in Jesus' time to be, you know, kind of fit the mold of a proper Jew, hit the, all the points of being a proper Jew. So number one, you had to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, number two, you had to attend synagogue worship services on the Sabbath. And number three, you had to keep all the yearly feasts, go to all the parties. Number four, if you lived far away from Jerusalem, you had to make sure you maintained good contact. And number five, you paid the annual temple tax. 
That's how a Jewish man showed his piety. And this is just as an aside. As Christians, we, we kind of do the same thing, don't we? Uh, things that once might have been necessary or helpful uh, because of a particular historical context evolved into a tradition. And that extra-biblical tradition, which originally was beneficial, now turned to a, a point of piety, like a look, look at us, look what we do. And that can be incredibly dangerous. When things that, when we, when we add things like rites and rituals and human traditions to the list of things that we think God is commanding us to do when we worship him. Looking uh, back at our text, we see that these temple tax collectors, they corner Peter and they ask him this question. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And the accusation is, is pretty clear, right? Jesus had just spent three years traveling around. He had been in and out of his hometown. And the implied question from these tax collectors uh, for Peter is this. Is your teacher a tax dodger? And you can almost see the scene, right? They, they come up to Peter. They have their glasses on the end of their nose. And they're leaning up. And they're reading through the scroll. And they're saying, hey, Peter, we're, we're looking at all the names. And, and the name beside Jesus of Nazareth uh, son of, of Mary and Joseph, there's no, there's no checkbox beside his name. Does your, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? As all the, all the proper Jews do, all the pious Jews do. And you know, it's, it's interesting that they approach Peter and not Jesus. And if you read through the Gospels, you can understand, right? People that tried to trick Jesus with a question, they often had the tables turned right back on them, and they walked away looking pretty silly. You know, maybe it was more effective to approach one of his disciples and, and to capitalize on this sense of Jewish honor. You know, and, and in response to their question, you know, Peter probably should have said something more like this. You know, why don't you ask Jesus? He's just up the road. He's actually in that house right over there. Why don't you just ask Jesus that question? Be my guest. But that's not what Peter does. He doesn't miss a beat, right? Our text tells us, yes, he does. Yes, Jesus pays the tax. And we don't know from, from reading this text if, if Peter was being arrogant or if he was being defensive. I don't know if he was intentionally trying to save face for Jesus or if he was really trying to, uh, if he really thought that Jesus actually paid the temple tax. It doesn't really matter, though, because Jesus knew what he said. And he knew what, what, uh, what Peter had told these tax collectors. And he was ready for Peter when he walked through the door of the house. And so that's where we get to our second point the response of the son. So if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 25 and verse 26. So before Peter had a chance to say a word, Jesus asked him a pretty simple question, but with a very profound implication. This is what it says, verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and tax? From their children or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. Now, it's a bit of a silly question, isn't it? I mean, obviously kings don't uh, get their wealth from taxing their sons and their daughters. And I was looking this up. This is actually still a principle for us uh, today in England. The royals, they don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay um, income tax. They don't have to pay capital gains tax. Uh, they don't have to pay inheritance tax. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's probably not worth it, though, if you've watched The Crown. 
Now, it's clear what, what, what Jesus is saying here. See, the temple was his father's house. And since Jesus was the son of the father, he had every right to be exempt from paying the temple tax. And you see, through this statement, Jesus was again confirming uh, that he really was the son of God, that he really was the son of the living God. And since sons are exempt from tax, he shouldn't have to pay. It's a plain truth. And on top of that, you know, this tax wasn't even really commanded in the law. It was, it was a point of tradition. Why should Jesus have to pay it? But there's another reason Jesus could argue why he shouldn't pay the temple tax. See, earlier in Matthew, uh, Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. You see, Jesus was the true and the better temple. He was the eternal son of God who came to, to dwell among us. And at that moment in, in Matthew 17, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was heading to the cross. He knew that he was going to die. And he knew that after his final ragged breath as he hung on the, on the cross, that the curtain of the earthly temple would just rip from top to bottom as the earth shook. He knew that the temple was finished. It was going to be finished. He knew that it was going to become obsolete. It had served its purpose. And there was no more need then, after Jesus' death, there was no more need for uh, priests. There was no more need for temple sacrifices. And there was no more need for this ransom tax that through tradition had become the temple tax. See, Jesus had every right not to pay the temple tax. But if you look at verse 27, what we see is that he was willing to pay it anyways. Why? Why, why did he pay? Well, he tells us, so that we may not cause offense. See, Jesus laid down his rights because at the end of the day, it would do more harm than good not to pay the temple tax. In his commentary uh, on Matthew's gospel, F.D. Bruner summarizes this really well. He writes, Jesus puts everything below himself. For Israel might understandably take offense at Jesus' rejection of the tax. And so for this piddly reason, for this silly reason, would struggle and hesitate to believe in Jesus. You see, uh, Paul uses similar language in Galatians 5 when applying the truth of this now to Christians. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Only do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but through love serve one another. And then again, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul applied this teaching to himself in speaking about the character and the attitude that he himself embraced as a, as a gospel preacher. He writes, For I am free from all, and I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. That I might win more of them. And if you watch Paul's journey, he, he applies this everywhere he goes. There's an interesting story of when Paul takes his Timothy on these missionary journeys. And, and Timothy, you have to understand, was raised uh, by a Christian uh, mom and a, and a Greek dad. And so he wasn't circumcised. And that was a big deal for the Jews. And you see, Paul, he wanted to reach the Jews. And he knew that, that Timothy not being circumcised would be a total offense to the Jews that they were trying to reach. And so he asked Timothy, Timothy, would you get circumcised, even though it is totally your right not to? 
but to do it anyways so that we can bring the gospel to the Jews. This wasn't legalism or anything like that. This was an act of love on Timothy's part. And you see, just like Jesus, he chose to love and surrender his rights because at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. The gospel needed to be preached. And I, and I want to be super clear here, crystal clear here, that we're not teaching um, a, a blanket statement of, of condoning sin or tolerating sin. Not at all. And, and we also know from other parts of Jesus' ministry that he's not teaching like, this blanket statement of, of people-pleasing. No, what Jesus is primarily teaching is that Christians must have discernment and wisdom to know when something is worth claiming our rights on and when they should willingly give them up for the sake of others. You see, what's more important, claiming certain rights that might cause unnecessary offense to the gospel or surrendering those rights for the cause of the gospel? Sometimes, love looks like surrendering our rights in order for the gospel to still reach our neighbors. In Matthew 17, it's, it's really clear. Jesus made the conscious decision that this traditional temple tax, which he was not obligated to pay, was not the hill that he wanted to die on. He had come to die on another hill in Jerusalem. And that message is, again, we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. That's how we come to our, our third point, the ransom of the Son. Is he more, more important than anything I've said so far? If you get all that, that's, that's beautiful. But this is, this is really the most amazing part about this story. Underneath the text of this strange story in Matthew 17 about not causing unnecessary offense is something far greater. You see, in miniature form, in, in a moment of foreshadowing, we find a theological picture of the cross, a picture of something that we call substitutionary atonement. A picture of the Son of God choosing to pay the ransom price for others. Now think of, this, think of it this way. The Bible teaches in Romans 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. That, that the tax on sin is death. And by rights, every single one of us is a sinner who will one day stand before the holy God of the universe and the Bible teaches that he will demand payment for sin. That's what the Bible says. And you, when you think about what's happening in Matthew 17, you have to realize that we're the others in the story. <laughs> Originally, without Jesus, we are the others in the story. We're the tax-dodging enemies of God who rightfully should have to pay the ransom price for sin, the ransom price for our lives. But the Bible also tells us something incredible. You see, in the, in the second half of Romans 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God the Father, he flipped the script. He flipped the script and he paid the ransom tax by requiring it from his son. And, and the son who was never obligated to pay, who had existed from eternity past in perfect uh, love and harmony with the Father and in, with the Spirit, he willingly laid that all aside. He willingly laid aside his glory and he entered into this world. 
He took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, he willingly came to us broken, sinful, rebellious people, and God the Father delivered him over into the hands of men. The full wrath of God was laid on Jesus Christ, and he paid the ransom tax for your sins and for my sins. The son who should never have had to pay, he had no sin, paid the tax for sin. And he paid it with his life so that you and I could be free. And that is why after this service, we sing this song with this message. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. You see, we're like Peter in this story. Peter should have had to pay the temple tax. He he wasn't the son of God. But Jesus took care of it. That's what our story says. Get the coin, it'll cover me and cover you. See, Jesus laid down his rights and he paid for himself and he also covered the cost for Peter. And earlier in our scripture reading, we read from 1 Peter. Do you remember that? Where I think, I believe that Peter later realized the significance in part of this story. And he writes these to the scattered Christians. You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And and here's what's so amazing about this story. The gospel doesn't stop at the cross. It doesn't stop at this divine courtroom where the judge requires payment. No, the wonder of the cross, the wonder of, of this ransom is that the son, is that after Jesus cleanses us from our debts, the father adopts us into his family. The children are free, Jesus said. Children, plural, are free. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you surrendered your life to him, then you are free. You are children of the Father. You've become family. You're, You're part of the family of God. You are now sons and daughters of the King. The sin that you commit, they're paid for by the Son. They're paid for by Jesus you're his son, you're his daughter. And you're now free to live in in the love and in the service of King Jesus. Well, friends, the, uh, the son who is sovereign over his death and his resurrection is also sovereign over fish. And we'll close with this. I need to think with me for a minute. What all had to occur for this miracle to happen? I, I imagine maybe it went something like this. Jesus would have had to sovereignly ordain that someone would go to the docks and and trip or something and a coin would fall out of his pocket and fall into into the water, poor guy. And then a fish would have to swim up to it and scoop it up in its mouth, but, but not swallow it. And then swim over to where Peter was just getting his line ready, throwing it in, and then it would chomp down on the hook. That's an amazing miracle. Maybe it didn't happen like that. Maybe Jesus just made the coin appear in the fish of the mouth. That's possible too. 
But regardless, it's an amazing miracle. But this gospel story is far more than a miracle fishing story. It's way more than a, than a big fish story. It's a story that reflects Jesus' sovereignty. It's a story that reflects his love for sinners, his sonship to the Father, his humanity, his humility, his, his mission, his death and his resurrection. And it's a story that shows us his willingness to pay the ransom for our sins. You see, Jesus laid down his life so that you and I would become free sons and daughters of the King. This is the gospel message for us this morning. It was always God's incredible plan to take his son, his own son, and have him pay the ransom that we owed, but we could never pay. What a love. What a, what a God. What a Savior. Let's pray to this God together. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this life-changing story of ransom. We recognize our, our debt to sin separated us from you. We couldn't pay. We were, we were done for. And yet you still came to us. You still loved us. And you sent us your son, your only son, to pay the debt and set us free. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your humility, for your willingness to die for us, for your willingness to make us sons and daughters of the Father. Move us with this message this morning as we reflect on your love and as, as we see how we can apply that love into our lives and as we bring the gospel out to our friends and to our family. And if there are those here this morning, Lord, that, who do not know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that you would open up their hearts and that they would say, yes, I want Jesus as my Savior. I want him to cover my ransom tax. Lord, I help them to see that you are a loving God, that you sent your Son into this world, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life with you. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of our awesome Savior, King Jesus. Amen.